Welcome back to the SSR podcast. You might just say that this episode is historic. Did I get your attention? Great. You're going to love this conversation. Episode 190 is historic because it's the first time we've explored a book that's intended for younger readers, even younger readers. My guest wanted to do a deep dive on Peggy Parrish's Amelia Bedelia, which was also one of my childhood favorites. So we decided to read a boxed set of five books from the series. This boxed set includes Amelia Bedelia, Amelia Bedelia and the Surprise Shower, Come Back Amelia Bedelia, Thank You Amelia Bedelia, and Play Ball Amelia Bedelia. I just said Amelia Bedelia a lot of times. You'll hear so much about our girl Amelia over the next hour, but for now, I will just let you know that she made her big debut in 1963 and that I was obsessed with her in the 90s. We chat about each of the individual books in the boxed set today, and we cover so many other juicy topics too. Wordplay, the beauty of kids being in on the joke of a book, real and hypothetical Amelia Bedelia reboots, Amelia's reframe of domestic labor, some ethical and philosophical lessons we can take from the books, our heroine's artful passive aggression, and ageism. We also consider some big questions, like how does one really dress a chicken, and what does it really mean to trim a tree? For episode 190, I am thrilled to welcome Kate Kennedy back to the show. Kate joined me in October of 2020 to discuss Meet Kirsten, and when I heard her talking on her pod about how much she enjoyed our interview, I couldn't wait to invite her for SSR round two. I am a huge fan of Kate's show, Be There in Five, which you can find wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And she's an excellent Instagram follow at Be There in Five. Kate is the author of Twinkle Twinkle Social Media Star, and she has a new book in the works right now, which you'll hear more about later. Thank you, Kate, for joining me. A big shout out of thanks also goes out to all of you. I am so grateful for this community and for everyone who has been on this indie podcast journey with me for any period of time. As a reminder, this is episode 190, which means that episode 200, yes, that's episode 200, is not so far away. And that's truly thanks to all of your support and downloads. If you are newer to the show and want to follow along and get to know me better, make sure you're following the show at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter or on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. There's even more SSR to enjoy as part of our Patreon family. Patrons get to play an active role in keeping the show going strong, which I appreciate endlessly, and they get so many fun perks in return. We have a very chatty Discord channel, monthly newsletters, reading recap videos, bonus episodes, behind the scenes, sneak peeks, and the SWR Shit We Read book club. This month, we are reading Alison Cochran's The Charm Offensive, and in May, we will turn our attention to Black Cake by Charmaine Wilkerson. I facilitate this book club myself and it is so much fun. Join us and support SSR while you're at it at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. This week's episode is brought to you by Kensington's newest title, Picnic in Someday Valley. Written by New York Times bestseller Jody Thomas, Picnic in Someday Valley is the latest installment in the Honey Creek series, which started with Breakfast at Honey Creek Cafe. It's a great choice for book clubs and serves up a fantastic mix of warmth and romance. You can find Picnic in Someday Valley wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. As always, I would love to point all of the audiobook lovers in the audience in the direction of Libro FM, which is my audiobook platform of choice. It's a great alternative to Audible because it allows you to support independent bookstores instead of a giant corporation. And with Independent Bookstore Day coming up on April 30th, there's never been a better time to make the switch. The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRpodcast when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. I can't wait to hear about the books you're listening to and loving. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. 
you may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading. But if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Kate. Welcome back to SSR. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. It has been a while. We were just trying to figure out how long it's been, and I'm going to sound like such a nerd right now, but I am such a fan of your podcast that I feel like I spend hours and hours talking to you. So there's a part of me that feels like we just talked last week, but I know it's actually been like two years. I mean, I'm honored that you would even be willing to hear me talk more. So yeah, I mean, that. <laughs> I can't get enough. And today we're talking about Amelia Bedelia. And this is sort of an interesting episode because this is like the youngest kind of book that we've ever covered on the podcast. So we decided to go like the boxed set route. And I was excited about the pick because I've heard you mention Amelia on your podcast a few times. And I grew up loving Amelia Bedelia. And it's not a book that I've heard a lot of people of our generation talk about like in casual conversation. And so I think I was operating under the assumption that I sort of like invented her. (laughs) And so when I heard you talk about her, I was like, Oh, good. It's not just me. And then of course, I did my research and realized that no, she has quite a history beyond my own childhood. But I'd love to hear more about why you chose Amelia Bedelia and why and how she played a role in your life growing up. Yeah, I think that, you know, when you're a kid, the media you consume will spark your interests. And a lot of things will kind of pass right through you. And a lot of things will stick with you that you later go on to realize were the first indication that you had an interest or a skill or a preference for something. And I think for people that love words and language and tend to be more verbal. Amelia Bedelia is perhaps one of the first like elements of humor that I really found in this arena where I I kind of started to love wordplay. And I thought, you know, way more so than like slapstick type stuff or things that were like destructive or like bathroom humor, like I L O L when she drew those drapes. And I think that it was just foreshadowing for years to come of what I now still love so much more so than playing outdoors. I love wordplay. (laughs) Yeah, you do a lot of wordplay on your podcast and I always LOL. So Amelia Bedelia has (laughs) definitely influenced you in a, and I think an effective and meaningful way. (laughs) Maybe to my own detriment. It's, it keeps me entertained <laughs> talking to myself. <laughs> and keeps all of us on our toes, just trying to keep up. I feel like I was maybe too young at first to understand the word play. I started reading like to myself without my parents pretty young. And so I feel like I was sort of a snob even at a young age. I was like, I don't need this Amelia Bedelia anymore. Like I'm going to move on. So I, I feel like I almost missed the window where I really appreciated the brilliance of the language in these books. But I was reading some articles about the series and how one of the reasons that these books have endured for so long is the fact that they really allow kids to be in on the joke and also to feel smart, which mm-hmm. I think is, is worth mentioning and important to talk about because I think kids see Amelia Bedelia as, as an adult who does know how to do things. Like she is capable in her own way. She's not a total like lost cause. She's an authority figure in certain ways, but they also get to be smarter because they understand like there are a couple of steps ahead of her when she's making all of these blunders at her job. Yes. I think there's brilliance to teaching kids who don't know that they're being taught by having that kind of corrective thought process implied in the, in the narrative. And she's a lovable character that I did that you're like too young to look down upon or think that she's kind of dense. You're just like, silly Amelia, that's not what that means. And yeah, it's it's empowering in a way to feel smarter than the narrator. Yeah, and a grown-up at that. Like, I'm I'm smarter than this grown-up. Although I do think some of the phrasing in these books, like, it doesn't quite hold up. The series started in 1963, which, again, I had no idea. I thought this was, like, a niche, like, cult kind of series <laughs> that was followed by a very small group of people. But no, it's been around for many decades. And I do think some of the phrasing, like, of the tasks that she's given, like, even drawing the curtains. Like, I think even in the 90s when I was reading these books or when my parents were reading them to me, I'm not sure that that was 
a turn of phrase that I was accustomed to hearing. And I think kids in 2022 certainly would be like, oh, that's a bit formal, isn't it? Or like dressing a chicken, which is, of course, like a highlight of the first book in the series. Yes. I've actually thought about this a lot, how there are actually so, uh, you know, Peggy Parrish, who wrote it, passed away and her, I think her son or nephew kind of continued the series, but I feel like there is kind of a white space for a more modern Amelia Bedelia with modern turns of phrase, especially in a technological sense, because so many idioms and figures of speech now still trip people up. Whereas, yeah, Amelia Bedelia's is more grounded in housework for her character. But I think that, yeah, it's funny because perhaps the most memorable words she confused in the book are are the ones that like are terms I never use that I'm honestly not even sure I still understand what it means to dress a chicken and outside of later Ozen. Like actually, what does that mean? (laughs) Like I, I, maybe herbs. (laughs) I think you'd be like, (laughs) (laughs) we're like, she's she's so stupid. (laughs) And I'm like, actually, if somebody told me to do half of these things, I probably wouldn't do them well. I would just like toss some salt and pepper and maybe like a sprig of rosemary on it. And I'd be like, looks like it's dressed and ready. Right. Or like put it on a doily. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a doily would be very tasteful. Festive. festive. Very festive. <laughs> Are you aware, Kate, of Amelia Bedelia works from home? No. Oh, you're going to love this. Okay. So to your point about Amelia Bedelia may be needing a bit of a refresh for 2022. In 2021, there was an episode of This American Life, and I will link it in the show notes. But for Act 3, they had a writer put together something that they called Amelia Bedelia Works From Home, and they had an actor read it on mic. And it was inspired, of course, by the fact that in 2020 and 2021, everybody is working from home. And so in this version, Amelia Bedelia is still working for Mrs. Rogers, who is like a disembodied character because, again, she's working remotely. And Mrs. Rogers first asks her to touch base with HR. So Amelia Bedelia gets a pair of scissors and she cuts out the letters H and R and then she like runs down the street to find a baseball diamond and she puts the letters on home base, which I I promise they get more clever. Like that's not my favorite one. (laughs) The next one is hopping on Zoom. Uh, She is invited to hop on Zoom by Mrs. Rogers. And I think you can probably guess what she does, Kate. (laughs) She literally hops She does. She hops like a bunny. (laughs) She's instructed to go order her lunch and she decides to be an overachiever and she categorizes her lunch first by height of items and then alphabetically it goes on like this. And then spoiler alert, but Mrs. Rogers ultimately says that she hired Amelia to increase brand engagement, not to waste her time. And Amelia is fired. Mm. And so Amelia goes home and, and tells her roommate, Alexis, which I loved, great detail, um, that she lost her job. And Alexis asks how she plans to make rent. And Amelia says, I really don't have time to think about how to put on a revival of a musical from the 90s right now because I just lost my job, which really made me LOL. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Isn't that good? That's really cute. Isn't that good? And then to top it all off, she proposes uh, marriage to a contractor named Alfonso Badonzo. And uh, then she goes back to Mrs. Rogers and is like, look, I increased engagement. That is a twist I didn't see coming. I did not either. I was really feeling sad for her. I was like, she's not going to make rent either in the monetary sense or in the musical sense. And that was making me sad (laughs) because I'd actually love to see an Amelia Bedelia produced musical. But she finds love, at least for the purposes of getting her job back. And I appreciate that about her. I feel like her roommate, Alexis, could have served as a makeshift Alexa because Alexa has a lot of Amelia Bedelia vibes and being way too literal in how she understands our commands. (laughs) Wait, Alexa is Amelia Bedelia. I hadn't even thought about that. That's a very good parallel. It's kind of like crazy and how technologically advanced voice recognition is but it goes to show it's like limitations of genuine connectivity because it it it, in the absence of nuance of linguistics it's impossible to to talk to someone (laughs) yeah without context it's really difficult to have a real conversation i found this other article from uh, some center for philosophy and it's all about how like you can use amelia bedelia to talk about the philosophy of language to kids and how like 
it doesn't make sense to have a conversation with somebody or to engage in linguistic exchange with somebody if you don't have context. And Mm -hmm. there was this whole list of questions that you can ask kids about like the ethics of language. And then I thought this one was really interesting. They have a whole other list of questions about the ethics of forgiveness because of the ways in which Amelia Bedelia is pretty much always forgiven either by her employers, the Rogers, or by like supporting characters like the baseball team that we see in one of the books we read for today, or great aunt, what was her name? Great aunt, Mary, there's a great aunt who Uh, forgives her. I forget. But yeah, it's about like, does Amelia Bedelia deserve forgiveness? Like, would you, would you, would you forgive her? If you were Amelia Bedelia, like, how would you ask for forgiveness? And so I know you said before we jumped on the mic that you were worried this was going to be a little one note, but no, I think that there's a lot here. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, that fellow, that's an interesting philosophical extension of it. My, my mom was a elementary school librarian and she said that she would use Amelia Bedelia to even just kind of highlight how differently like words and actions are interpreted and why it's good to be very clear about instructions or expectations, especially with people of different cultural backgrounds. And I was kind of thinking about it from that lens too, of like, as an adult, you put equal um, responsibility on Amelia, but also the Rogers, because they don't go to any lengths to be understood. And not that's not what the series is about, but I think there's a big kind of broader philosophical lesson there of like, she's not that wrong. Like she took it literally and she's not wrong so much as there's a miscommunication and both parties are responsible for clarifying that. Yeah, I think that's really well said, this question of expectations, which is something that like I wouldn't have had the language for when I was reading these books as a kid, but like they're not setting clear expectations. And I think that there's actually a great opportunity here for Amelia to manage up Yes, <laughs> and asking different <laughs> questions. But it is her first day on the job, like in the very first book of the series, again, published in 1963, which was part of the, the box set that I asked you to enjoy for this conversation. We're told that it's her literal first day of work. And And the Rogers are just like, okay, bye, we're leaving. And we see their cute little dog in the car with them. And they're just like driving off for the day. And they've left Amelia a list of things to do. And I think you make a really good point, which is that as adults, we can sort of empathize with Amelia a little bit more and be like, okay, so if I showed up for my first day on the job, and five minutes later, my boss was like, okay, gotta go. Here's some things you might want to try. That sets you up for failure. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of, in retrospect, I'm kind of like, man, you know, you're almost, I almost felt like, oh, the Rogers are nice people because they would like forgive her and eat her cooking. But it kind of maybe speaks to like a broader, like classist issue of how people perceived the people that work in their home and perform housework of like this kind of impersonal disconnect of like barking orders and leaving and just having its its level of expectation of, perfection for a lot of chores that like are nice to have but not need to have yeah there there is like such privilege here that they like just assume that she would know what to do because she is just like the kind of person supposedly that would work for them and there's a lot out there in terms of like essays and other coverage or think pieces about how Amelia Bedelia is like this unique face on domestic work for women in the 60s and how oh really Yeah, I I can send them to you and I'll make sure to link them in the show notes. But I I found some fascinating, truly fascinating stuff about Amelia Bedelia. There was one piece in The New Yorker where they, they compare Amelia Bedelia to a character in a short story that I've never read. So I won't pretend that I have, but uh, that story was written by Herman Melville and it's called Bartleby the Scrivener sort of neither here nor there since I don't know what that story is about. But I guess Bartleby like kind of sticks it to his employers and gets mad at them as a domestic worker. And then he like, I don't know, it sounds very complicated and sort of terrible. But Amelia Bedelia, according to this New Yorker writer, says that she turns passive aggression into a kind of art as a way to like show small rebellion toward her (laughs) employers, which I thought was interesting. And there's another line in that piece that says, perhaps more than other forms of work, domestic labor is often misnamed as love, duty, or some kind of irresistible biological calling. And that's when it's named at all. And I think this piece goes on to talk about how like the series shows like all of the work that goes in 
to having a job like Amelia Bedelia's like and it's being named as work it's not just like oh this woman like around the house like doing tasks that women do and so it was kind of like for the first time maybe for kids putting these kinds of responsibilities on a pedestal and showing that it's hard like obviously it's exaggerated because Amelia Bedelia like doesn't always know what she's doing but it shows that like it's a lot of work to not only do the actual work but to communicate with the people who are involved and the people who are paying you. Yeah, that's really interesting. I love that about the invisibility of labor. And in a sense, via the hijink, she gave it visibility even to the people she was working for that. Yeah, that's a really interesting like anti-work movement angle on it. I would need to think through because as a person with a natural aversion to housework, I respect the hell out of that plight of <laughs> passive aggression as an art. I, that's really, that's that's funny. I, I do think I, I had, when I was going through the books, the box set, I think, you know, we're not at the target age group for this series. So one of my reflexes was like, this is highly redundant, but there's an, like a redundancy in that sort of labor too, that almost like if you were going to position it as anti-work or, or kind of a statement in protest, it's like, yep, this is what women do and did in that time frame, or women in her position did in that time frame every day, all day. It's just more minutia. That's like not totally necessary that when you give it visibility, you kind of realize it's inconsequential. Yeah. Oh, the redundancy is really interesting. I hadn't thought about that too, because I, of course, had that reaction. I was like, okay, like she's going to mess it up again. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait to see. How many ways can this go? <laughs> how, how many ways can you fuck up a task? I love her, but she's going to screw it up. But yeah, I mean, that's sort of as somebody who like, I guess, in theory, like keeps a home <laughs> to some degree. Right. <laughs> That in itself feels redundant. Like every week I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to sweep the dog hair off the floor. Like when does that happen? I have to do it again. I thought that was done. I did that last week. Right, right. And like the stuff she was doing, I mean, it just, I don't know, as a millennial seeking purpose and fulfillment, I just wouldn't find much in it. But she like had fun and was assertive and just would mess up and move forward. And it, I don't know, she didn't see, seem to take it that personally until the book where she had to go find other work. Which one was it? That was my favorite one. Come back, Amelia Bedelia. Yeah, that was that was heartbreaking, but of course had a happy ending. Um, but yeah, she got bummed out about that one. I discovered, I don't know like if your books came in the same order in the box set that mine did, but I think Comeback Amelia Bedelia came like a little bit further back in the stack. In reality, it was the second book that was published, which I thought was kind of interesting in that like the first book sets you up to meet Amelia Bedelia and to realize that this is her pattern and that she's like endearingly sort of behind the eight ball and always trying to catch up and do the right thing by her employers. And then right away in book two, they, they're fed up with her. I mean, I read, I think by the time I got to that book in the stack, I was like, okay, these people have had patience for more hijinks. And like, it just felt more compassionate. Whereas the fact that it's only the second book in the series, I don't know, that feels really jarring, especially because these books weren't all published on top of each other. I think it was like a year or two between each mm. one. So if you actually were reading these books as they came out, Maybe you fell in love with Amelia Bedelia in book one. And then a year later, you're like, okay, they hate her already. What happens next? I have to wait another year. I was wondering, and I should have looked up when this book came out, because this, like, you know, the baseball one felt like a little, you know, more of like a fun, updated, like offshoot of the who's on first persuasion. But come back, Amelia Bedelia, now that I think about it, like is pretty mired in like, the times of I don't whenever this is supposed to take place. Actually, when do we know when this is supposed to take place? I don't know when it's supposed to take place. I feel like it has it feels very much the era of like the Mary Poppins movie to me. I don't know if that lands with you at all, but like there's something about the sen sensibility like it, it's it's an American story, but it feels like this Victorian era American suburb that I don't know there's something about like the language and even the drawings that I feel like we're in like the home of Jane and Michael Banks. I was trying to think like, okay, did I, we have, okay, we have cars. And in yes. one scene we have a punch buggy, yes. which is interesting. Yeah. And I don't know if they're, you know, not to be a purist here, but I just was having trouble identifying the time frame because one thing that's notable about Come Back Amelia Bedelia is like her limitations in the workforce. There's almost like a comical thing happening where the only jobs she can find are 
hairdresser, secretary, nurse, like pretty uh, traditionally feminine roles, but also like the Rogers with employers that do zero due diligence. <laughs> yeah, they're like, sure, you can just come cut hair. If that's if the, you're, you're saying that you can do that, then we'd love to have you. There's no interview process whatsoever. Right, right. And it, it almost, I, I couldn't decide. I don't know if on purpose they kept it her roles to these kind of limited categories. There could have been a lot more comedy and pursuing stuff outside of like hair, beauty, health, and clerical work. But also maybe that would have made it too unrealistic if she's like working for NASA. I don't know. Well, I think in the later books, um, so as you mentioned, her nephew ultimately like took over the writing of these books. I believe that the author passed away in 1988. And then there was a flurry of letters from young readers who wanted more. And the family decided that they wanted to give that to the fans, but only if it was somebody from within the family. So her nephew, Herman, started writing the books in 1995, and he wrote a lot of books that were still kind of like similar to the originals at first. But later on, there were books that kind of took her work outside the home. So there are books with titles like Amelia Bedelia, Rocket Scientist. So yes, she maybe does go to NASA no. <laughs> or um, Amelia Bedelia for mayor with the numeral four, which I think is an interesting choice. Happy Haunting Amelia Bedelia, Amelia Bedelia Under Construction, Amelia Bedelia Cub Reporter. Like, it does seem that she's getting further and further away from these, like, as you said, traditionally feminine roles, both in the home and then even when she does go seek work outside of the Rogers home, she's going to these, like, secretarial and, and beauty jobs. It seems like he was kind of trying to bring her out of that as we were getting into the odds, but I would assume that's a, because he was like running out of ideas for things for her right. to do. And also maybe pressure from the publisher, which is a good thing. It, it, yeah, it, it's an interesting thing where there are different ways you could have evolved the plot and the character. And it sounds like he kind of evolved the settings and context to keep the same shtick. I kind of think it would have been interesting to advance her skills with wordplay, like figures of speech, idioms, metaphors, similes, like you could really make this a Where's Waldo of literary devices if you wanted to. And maybe that's not, you know, her core competency, but they're so it was so effective for me learning about, I don't know, I guess what you call them homophones or homonyms, words with two meanings in this book yeah. um, that I think that could have been extended to so many other arenas. I, sh I should have researched more what they've been doing lately because Amelia Bilia as a rocket scientist sounds truly disturbing. But Pete Davidson was going to go to space this week. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of high stakes situations here with with protagonists that maybe shouldn't be uh, having that kind of control of high stakes situations. <laughs> right. I actually am wondering because this box set that we read, the books are in this like I can read early reader format, which when I read these books, they were just like normal picture books. So I don't know mm. if they've been adapted at all in terms of the language. Like I don't remember now because it's been so many years since I last read Amelia Bedelia, but I wonder if it was simplified at all because this this wasn't always the core format of the books. Like they used to be a bigger trim size and maybe the language is a little was a little bit different. I wonder if they simplified it so that it could be in this easy reader set. I know I have to say like, well, remember when we were talking about Meet Kirsten I think we discussed how, at least for me, the like tiny illustrations were so sensory of like uh, what it looked like in the barracks of the riverboat or whatever. The Fritz Siebel illustrations are very memorable for me. And in the original picture book, not unlike what many of us did with our Facebook albums when we got Canon point and shoots and did color splash and only highlighted one color in a photo. <laughs> yeah. it, it, the only color in the original was green. Yes. Oh my gosh. The entire book was black, white, and green. I forgot about that. Such a weird choice. And I wonder what that was about. Yeah. Like, it seems like there was something deeper. Yeah. Hmm. I need to know more. Speaking of the illustrations, and then I do want to get a little bit more into the content of the books themselves, because I'm anxious to hear like what your favorite moments were. And if there are any things that like really confounded you, this is a purely superficial point that I'm, that I'm getting ready to make, but I was looking at Amelia Bedelia in these illustrations, and I was thinking about the fact that when I read these books as a kid, I was like, Amelia Bedelia is an old lady. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and now I look at her and I'm like, how cute is she? She's so fresh. She looks so youthful. She has such a zest for life and she's so eager to do her job well. And I think this just You're speaks so right. to 
again, the power of context where um, I'm now myself, perhaps, you know, past the age at which Amelia Bedelia is meant to be presented to us. And she no longer seems an old lady to me at all. I fully agree. And I think that I was, I looked this up because I was like, how old is she supposed to be? Uh, Because it's, I think that's kind of the funny part about getting into your thirties, especially is that suddenly everyone who's like famous is younger than you. Or like, I remember when I graduated college being like amazed that like, college athletes, like they're 19, like, you know, you just, you don't realize how young people are till you get older than them. And like Amelia Bedelia, I was like, certainly she's in her, her fifties. And she was 35 in the originals. And now in the new one, she's 28. (laughs) Okay. First of all, it's so specific. Which gives her more governess Maria Von Trapp vibes than I was thinking Maria Von Trapp. Yes. My world is is turned upside down. So I have so many questions. Who decided first that she was 35? Because I don't think it appears in the text anywhere. And then who decided, no, she needs to be younger. It's such a commentary on like women in the media. Like, 35 You're is so not young right. enough. She has to be 28. God forbid she be 30. So right. <laughs> It's, it's interesting looking back on the illustrations too, because I noticed small things I didn't notice before. Like in every scene, no matter what she's doing, she is holding her handbag. Like she never drops it. And I find that to be like a little bit funny and charming. And she holds it like Taylor Swift, like lightly dangling off her forearm, but her handbag's almost in every scene. And yeah, she's so put together. She has on blush, she has on earrings. She has like a little bit of a flower crown situation. And she's just so, it's for somebody who's in such disarray, she herself is a very presentable young woman at the ancient age of 35. (laughs) And I also, when I was reading the book, the first one, I was taken back to one of my other great passions in elementary school, which was learning script. And I loved the handwriting on the list. Yes, I loved that too. I loved, when I learned to write in cursive, I felt like I had reached a new level of power. Oh, same. I actually still predominantly write in cursive. And I've been wondering if it's kind of a lost art form or if kids are even learning it anymore. Like growing up in in third grade, you had to start no questions asked writing in cursive. And I really like refined the skill. It it takes a lot of practice to write in cursive well. And it's an art form to me. I just don't know these days what the kids are up to. Yeah. What are they doing? I think I've read that, that they're not teaching it in school anymore, or at least not as much. I feel like I lost most of my cursive. Now I write in like a weird hybrid of print and cursive, but that was a big deal when we learned. And I think it was also third grade in my school. Okay. But let's get into some of her hijinks because I asked you to read these, you know, really dense tomes. And I want to make sure that your efforts are are appreciated. And I want to, I want to find out what uh, was maybe most shocking to you or most interesting. So you said that your favorite was come back Amelia Bedelia. My favorite was the original Amelia Bedelia, because this, I remembered so much of it. I couldn't get over how much of it came back to me. Once I started reading it, we've touched on the dressing of the chicken already. She puts it in lederhosen. Again, Kate and I are not clear <laughs> on what the actual like goal of that should have been, but she draws drapes. She like dusts instead of undusting. Yes, the 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 one I also still well not I mean I understand what this means obviously, but it's perhaps like the most stretch of a second definition is trimming the fat. Yeah, she trims it like a tree, but it, that's that's a funny thing where that's really not anybody's reflex for the word trim. I wouldn't assume. <laughs> Yes, that's so true. Do you think it's because she already cut the towels because she was told to change the towels? So the author was like, we can't have two scissor things in one. Yes, for sure. I think that must have been it. And I mean, I think that when these were written in the 70s, like trimming the tree was probably a more common saying. That feels that feels like now we decorate a Christmas tree, but I don't feel like I hear people say, call it trimming. Do, do you hear people say trimming as decorating in any context besides like Christmas? No, and you're right. I think even not, not even at Christmas, really. Yeah. 
I think of it in the context of like the American Girl craft books that I had when I was a kid. I remember there was mm. one craft where you would like make your own lampshade and that was like a really cool thing to do. And you <laughs> get like the trim and it would be like trim the edges <laughs> of the lampshade and that was that made you like a chic girl. But I think that's probably the last time that it's been relevant to me. Oh, well, you bring up a good point that I think I misunderstood the alternate meaning of this. I took trim to mean decorate as in trim the tree, but you're trim in the context of decorate the edge of something is kind of like a trim is like kind of different. Like they're both decorative, but they, one implies more of like something done on an edge. This there, we've opened a can of worms because I think there's an, we're, we're bedelying. <laughs> we are bedelying because I do think that you yeah, get it trending. I think there's an argument to be made that when you decorate a Christmas tree, are you decorating the edge? <sighs> Three dimensionally. <laughs> I guess, but like then, but then like with the meat, you would have to be doing the entirety of the outside. You know what I mean? I need to think about that. But yeah, I guess she did just do the trim of the fat like an American girl lampshade. So not to harp on that, but honestly, (laughs) endless food for thought. I mean, in any case, she was wrong. And I think we have to stop trying to parse this one because you and I could probably go on for another hour trying to figure it out. Measuring the rice was also good. I enjoyed that, how she actually like takes out a measuring tape to figure out how tall the cups of rice are. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to your your favorite, Come Back Amelia Bedelia. We've talked a little bit about it already um, and her search for work after getting fired by the Rogerses. I think something that we haven't brought up yet is that the reason that Amelia continues to get back in everybody's good graces is because she's a good baker. Like they love the food yeah. that she makes. Was there anything else about Come Back Amelia Bedelia that you found especially charming? I think that I I had never read it. I think that my like perennial favorite agreed would always be the first. My favorite experience as an adult was Come Back because I had never seen her in a context outside of the Rogers home. Yeah. And I thought seeing her earnestness um, and resilience was sweet. I think it it added a, you know, I think in the other books, it's almost confusing how unflappable she is to criticism, but you could tell she was hurt when she was fired and it wasn't elaborated on, but it would evoke an emotional response from a kid when she said, you no longer want me or something like they, they chose those words wisely because it kind of shows her motivation or like, I don't know, like we just don't know much about her. But in that moment, we knew that like she wanted to be wanted. She wanted to provide something of value and, you know, not to nitpick, but I, I was kind of interested in the fact that she even understood the literal meaning of being fired. Oh, interesting. And there is a level of selectivity I found throughout the book of figures of speech. I mean, even when you think about her being a brilliant baker and making a lemon meringue pie, the hallmark of a meringue is having needing stiff peaks. And like, you think about baking instructions, they're perhaps the most figurative of all. Think of Schitt's Creek and folding the cheese. I, I think there's something maybe more to the positioning of her being a bit in protest because there's a lot of stuff she does that requires the, her implied understanding of stuff that she chooses to understand. <laughs> That's true because making a lemon meringue pie is not an easy task. I've watched enough Great British Bake Off to know that it can go horribly wrong. Yes. Baking is hard for me because I don't, I don't understand the verbs. I don't understand. I don't even know how to poach something like I or baking and cooking is the, is the language that is very difficult for a lot of people to absorb. And I think it's interesting. She understands it, but yeah. And come back Amelia Bedelia. I felt very emotional at the beginning. And I think that kind of drew me in because as a person who's a people pleaser, it always did confuse me that she didn't really care that she messed up so badly. (laughs) Yeah, this is really the only time that we see her kind of expressing any regret and and we see her experiencing consequences of her actions. And I will say that at the end, I really hated the fact that we close with her sort of being fully welcomed back into their employment because Mr. Rogers like is hungry. <laughs> like the feminist in me is like, of course, like he needs something to eat. So they're going to just like let her stay. I was thrilled that she had her job back, but I don't know. That kind of bugged me. Well, I was just rereading this page. So, okay. After she, um, so yeah, Mrs. Rogers 
is mad because she asked for cereal with her coffee and Amelia Bedelia pours coffee into cereal like it's milk. And then the page says, oh, you are impossible, says Mrs. Rogers. You're fired. You mean you don't want me anymore, asked Amelia Bedelia. That is just what I mean, said Mrs. Rogers. Now go. This is the only situation where there is dialogue, where she, Amelia Bedelia is able to ask a clarifying question. And then Mrs. Rogers repeats back to her, that's just what I mean. And when you think of the other stuff, it's list, they leave actions. And this is the one time she clarifies what fired means. And uh, and that to me has stood out. And I kept looking for other times when she was asking clarifying questions or had the opportunity to. And outside of like the sports one, I don't think she could. But I totally agree with, uh, I don't, it, it bothers me that her way to people's hearts is through their stomach in all of the cliche ways that irritates me. But also like maybe we're learning that that's the entire point is like, that's kind of a messed up point of value for her to constantly bring to the table. Yeah, like this guy could have prepared a can of soup for himself and maybe he wouldn't have done what Amelia Bedelia did and just stick the whole can on the stove, which we know is a bad idea. But if he thinks it's such a bad idea, then maybe he could have opened the can and heated it for his own meal. Just a thought. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's funny because that, yeah, she, for all the cooking and baking skills she does possess, she really does lack others. Yes. <laughs> I, I do think like some of the wordplay and the misunderstandings are not as strong outside of the first book. Like, yeah, we see this not only in Come Back Amelia Bedelia, but I think also in Play Ball Amelia Bedelia, which we, which you just mentioned, this notion where she like is constantly picking people up and like carrying them and that being a point of contention. I don't know. It was only funny to me like once or twice. And I, again, not the target audience. But I also feel like as a kid, like that wordplay wouldn't have hit quite as neatly for me as a lot of the ones in the original book. I will say the only time I laughed out loud was in Play Ball, Amelia Vidalia. Tell me when. When she is told to put on a uniform and you flip the page and she's in colonial garb. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That was pretty I don't weird. know why I didn't see it coming. <laughs> Yeah, we should have. Have we learned nothing from Amelia Bedelia? Other than than that moment, like I found play ball Amelia Bedelia to be very stressful. And maybe it's because it is it hits a little too close to home <laughs> in that as an elementary schooler, I feel like I maybe for a brief moment thought that I could play a sport here and there and would try to get involved in games at school and just never understood the instructions that were offered to me and so would always just mess up. And so Amelia Bedelia, like trying to learn to play baseball and consistently getting it a little wrong or a lot wrong, like it's, it just felt very real to me. I think I felt like a level of validation or like empowerment in play ball, Amelia Bedelia, because in her having such little understanding of sports terminology, it in light, like kind of, kind of illumin- illuminates like how sports are no less frivolous than like housework. Like sports is such a, like a respected thing by people as like a, an interest relative to interests that are like traditionally feminine. And I kind of liked her reducing it down to these literal interpretations that showed how stupid it is. Yeah. Like this is dumb because people take it so seriously. People take games, competitions, like in, I agree it is chaotic and stressful, but it was kind of refreshing that she inserted herself in that environment where she was like, why would I care? This is just a game. Cause it is. Yeah, especially just the ridiculous nature of the fact that she's presumably an adult woman, like being recruited to play on a team of kids who are taking themselves so seriously. And not only is she revealing the fact that like, this is truly just a game, but she's also like, you are children. Like, not that she's saying that to them explicitly, but I think as an adult, I can look at these pictures and be like, how hilarious is it that she's kind of like stooping to this level? She's doing them a solid, like one of their friends got sick. She's helping them out. Um, and they're giving her such a hard time because she doesn't get it right first. Right. And like it is it's extra funny thinking of this one, too, in the context of her being 35 and not like Mrs. Doubtfire. It's like thinking of me at my age, putting on colonial garb and pitching in at a rec baseball league is a different story. But, yeah, a lot of the wordplay is very easy. <laughs> it's very who's on like who's on first. Um, and 
I don't know. I feel like in every reality show or sitcom, there's like a token episode where they have a rec softball league and I always skip it. It's like, I'm I'm always the least interested in the sports plot lines. And I was kind of like, eh, even reading this one, but it did make me laugh. Yeah. Well, the housewives just use those, those softball games as like another plane on which to like act out their frustrations with each other. But this, what I liked about this particular installment and the fact that we get her out of the house is it's like the episodes of the housewives where they go on vacation. Like you're taking them out of their Uh, normal environment and we get to see how they behave somewhere else. Let's talk also about Amelia Bedelia and the surprise shower, because I remembered this one from when I was a kid. Also, I feel like this was my first exposure to bridal showers, (laughs) which is just like a funny thing to think about now that I have spent so many hours of my life attending them and planning for them. I just thought this one was funny. I do think that like, again, having been part of this like bridal shower culture, being part of like the wedding industry, both as a bride and as a bridesmaid and as a friend, like seeing the humor in Amelia Bedelia's misunderstanding of this whole concept. It's just, it's like a new level as a grown up. Yeah. I think that, well, okay. So this one I read the other day and now I'm, I'm remembering that I found the, and there was the, this story was made quite complicated to me by the insertion of so many characters. Yes. True. I didn't need the cousin. What what point was he serving? <laughs> yes. He was sort of like her sidekick. Also, his name was very unique. Unique. His name Al-Kalu? is Alkalu. I've never heard that before. In the dedication, it says for Stan, who was born near Alkalu. So... It must be a nod to her like uncle or something from a town called that. And watch this be something really obvious we're missing. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not familiar. Somebody's going to DM me some very obvious screenshot about <laughs> like some famous person named Alkalu. Yeah, there were a lot of characters. It got a little muddy, I think, because not only do we have the ladies that are coming over for the shower, but we have the cousin who it's not, like he was sort of instructed to go over and help Amelia Bedelia, but he doesn't do anything to assist her. He just further confuses her. Right. I think it would have been funnier if we just had like a handful of ladies, maybe. And even so, like all of a sudden they all show up and I got a little bit thrown off at the end. Me too. I think I needed to read this one again. But also it's, this one reads as pretty old timing its references too. Because I don't know if I understand icing fish or pruning, what pruning bushes? Yeah, hedges or bushes, I think. Like what? I I genuinely don't know what that means to prune a hedge. I've heard of a thing called pruning shears, which I think is, so I guess you like trim them. But as somebody who's about to have some hedges, I guess I should learn if this is a thing (laughs) that I need to do. Uh, I'm going to make a note not to put actual prunes on them because that's clearly incorrect based on this book. Yeah, I see the fish was It did. And it looked like sort of like Dr. Seuss, like fun and colorful and fantastical. Like I like these little purple, purple blossoms on these bushes. It was pretty. And I did like the illustrations in this one because they were extra colorful, like with all the dresses and all of the characters. I love that Amelia Bedelia puts on her little sassy bathing suit, but she keeps her purse and her hat. Yes, I know. That's actually maybe outside of the uniform, the only wardrobe change we saw. And yeah, that, that was pretty cute. I feel like you're right in that it, it kind of highlights a lot of the silliness of kind of uh, ladies lunching traditions, but especially in the context of a bridal shower as an adult, I find myself found myself countless times being like, what are we doing? And why are we doing this? And why are we buying so many gifts all the time? But what's funny is the that well, I mean, they maybe mentioned this, but I for a pod- podcast episode, I was like deep diving the origin of a shower, and like, yeah, it was. I mean, back when there were like dowries and stuff, when like you you were kind of an asset to be acquired as a woman, uh, people would, especially if in the event you weren't as valuable as another bride, uh, people giving you things that would help with housework would kind of up your stock price, like it kind of made you more valuable to be taken on as a wife. So people would shower you with gifts and like throw stuff at you. And apparently in the old days, people would use like a parasol and block themselves from presents being thrown that were meant to like up the ante. And um, anyways, I thought that this kind of, I mean, showering you with gifts, like is literally kind of what it meant. And this book kind of 
hinted at that. But the stress of the the water was a bit much for me because I can deal with drawn drapes and a dusty room, but thinking about getting super soaked at a bridal shower, uh, I wouldn't have been as resilient as the characters. Yeah, I would not have handled myself with quite as much grace uh, as these ladies who do. They they just start laughing and they it ends up being a lot more fun than the original shower that was planned, which I, I agree. I think sometimes those events can be a little boring and Amelia spiced it up a bit. And it wasn't just about the baked goods, finally. No, like finally every other, she has humor. Every other one was, yeah. And they they saw the – this one is the first one where they see value in um, – there's like a bigger lesson of sometimes it's okay if things don't go according to plan. There's like a silver lining. Sometimes it turns out better than you planned, even if it doesn't look like it. And I kind of like that in addition to at the end, doesn't – oh, the cupcakes. They obviously like the cupcakes, but that's not that's not her redeeming quality. It's in her like – humor and in the kind of activity she brought to the occasion. Yeah, she made it better by being there, not just because she provided the snacks. These women have big uh, D-A-R, Emily Gilmore energy. <laughs> I, was think, I was thinking the same thing. I was definitely thinking the same thing about the great aunt. And thank you, Amelia Bedelia. It was making me think of Lorelai the first when great aunt Myra. Yes, grand. When great, yeah, when great aunt Myra comes and thank you, Amelia Bedelia. It feels like that moment when Lorelai the first descends upon the Gilmore home and Everybody panics and wants to make sure that she's super comfortable because she has high expectations. Yes. And actually, this, that, yeah, thank you, Amelia Bedelia is the, probably the closest to the first, right? Yeah. Um, but a lot of it was the wordplay was cute. And it's funny because it made me even, I was trying to guess what she was, since I hadn't read this before, I was trying to guess what she was going to do before I turned the page. And I, I I got it wrong a couple of times. Like when she was checking the shirts, I thought she was going to draw check marks on the shirt, but she like checkerboarded the shirt. Yeah, she really took it to another level. I didn't get that one right. I guessed the roses when she was told to scatter the roses. I kind of saw that one coming. But that she really went to great lengths with the dresses, too, to get the spots out um, rather than just, like, <laughs> removing the stains from her dress. She, like, actually cuts out the polka dots on Mrs. Rogers' polka dotted, intentionally so, dress. And that that takes time. You don't just, like you know, casually remove quickly all of the, the dots on a polka dot address. She really committed to that one. And there's a little bit more dialogue of her, like her internal monologue kind of, where she like is asked to separate the eggs. And she's like, I wonder why they need to be separated. They've been together all day and nothing <laughs> happened. And I kind it's of like the, the innocence of her thought process or pair the vegetables. And she's like, you two together and you two. And it, she's just like enjoying herself. Yeah, to your point, though, for somebody who's such a culinary whiz, it is sort of weird when she, especially the eggs, like if you're a good baker, you know how to separate eggs. So I do feel like she's just making mischief. It's like when my dog one minute can't hear me calling his name, but in the next minute when I say it's dinner time, he all of a sudden has restored all of his abilities to listen to me. It's like the same thing. Like, when you want to make a lemon meringue pie, yes, I know totally how to bake. But once you get once you're given a dumb job from your boss who's not respectful to you, like, no, I I forgot how to do any of this. I mean, the more we talk about it, I'm realizing Bedelia Core is really just a broader feminist manifesto of what does it look like if a woman exhibits weaponized incompetence? I love this take. <laughs> Weaponized incompetence. Yeah, this is what this is what we were raised on. <laughs> I mean, that's such a bigger. That's a conversation I've seen a lot more in recent years, where people talk about, especially the role of male partners. Oftentimes, where there's a tendency to be like, "Where's the turkey?" and it's like in the fridge. Yeah, you know, like you're asked questions that they know the answers to, or you know, you ask them to get something at the store and they come back and they're like, they were out of it. And it's like, oh my God, then get the next best thing. You know, it's like this literal interpretation of instructions that doesn't apply any sort of helpful imagination. I don't know. <laughs> There's something there. 
Wow, we have unlocked we have unlocked a lot here. <laughs> and this brings me to the big question, Kate. And since you've been on the show before, you know what's coming. But on the whole, what was the experience of coming back to Amelia Bedelia like? How does it compare to your expectations? Did it let you down? Did it hold up? These are I know we've already answered a lot of big questions here, but maybe just take us through any lingering thoughts you have. Yeah, I mean, I think something I love doing in my podcast and the the brilliance of your podcast is that process of celebrating something you love for what it is and kind of criticizing it as an adult that now like knows better. And sometimes when I'm criticizing or reviewing something as an adult, it affects how much I like it. And I still loved this through and through. I Obviously, we could dissect it for eternity, but not in a way that I think would make me not read it to my own children or not want it to be on my kids' bookshelves. In fact, I'm actually glad I have it if I have children because I'll have so much fun getting to read something that I do feel like holds up. And if possible, like, we'll, I don't know, spur off other conversations about some of the themes we discussed. But I, I, I don't know. I was delighted. I find her charming. I find the wordplay to be really enjoyable. It was nice to hear myself laugh out loud at a kid's book, which I normally wouldn't do. And um she just, I felt as warm toward her finishing the box set as I did when I was younger, even though I am slightly disturbed at, by her age. <laughs> yes. Why must she be less than 30? Like, why can't she be 30? It's like on The Bachelor, like all of the women have, once you're 30, you're considered old on The Bachelor. You have to be less than 30 and then you're, you could still get to be like sassy and cute. I, I don't want that for Amelia Bedelia. I want to live in a world where she can be 35. We don't want it, her to have the Claire Crawley treatment. That's for uh, sure. No. We, Remember Nick V was like 39 and then Claire was like 37 or 38 and the entire thing was about her age. <laughs> it was crazy. She's like, you can still find love as an older woman. Yeah. <laughs> it, was so, it was so bad. And we, we all know what that pressure did to her. Like it was just unfair. It was never going to, it was never going to end well. Um, never so I really enjoyed, never stood a chance. I really enjoyed reading this too. I think we've proven that we can still mine so much from books meant for younger readers. So this is good for me to keep in mind going forward. Thank you for choosing these books, Kate. Other than Amelia Bedelia, is there anything else that you've read lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, I got this. You probably mean like adult books, um, but in the context of YA, I, there's no way you haven't done an episode about this. But I'm realizing like it wasn't a heavy wordplay a big theme in like the Phantom Toll Booth. Yeah, I feel like I need to that. That's a, on my list of YA things to revisit, even for my own book of remembering my initial sources of inspiration for writing. So that's on my list. <laughs> Yeah, The Phantom Tollbooth is a good one. But I actually would love to hear more about your book. Um, I'm so excited to read it. It's on my personal TBR. And I'm sure our listeners would love to hear anything that you're willing to share at this point. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of um, in early stages and kind of broad, but it's a collection of essays about the female millennial zeitgeist and kind of uh, love letters to finding life lessons in the perhaps least expected of places through my surface level interests. I, I think that a lot of the things I learned and ways I observed the world were through the media I consumed that as a young woman, I often felt embarrassed to like. And now it's kind of me recounting those experiences and shouting them from the rooftops being like, these things matter. Shopping in a limited two matters. Like, you know, having the, 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 when you're young in the absence of lived experience, the things that you consume are what form your worldview. And like, I kind of want to celebrate and criticize that all the same through different phases of my life. And yes, it's, it's still, well, I can't say the title yet, but it'll, and I don't even know it'll come out in like a year or two. Um, but yeah, so I'm really, it's, it's a really, it's a very fun experience to write it. And I actually need to be going through more of my sources of inspiration like this. This was actually a really helpful exercise because it reminds me of like who I was. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. That warms my little millennial heart. Um, <laughs> I'm Well, I'm really looking forward to reading your book and it's been a lot of fun just to kind of hear you give us some Easter eggs about it, both on Instagram and on your podcast. So I will certainly be sharing about it when it comes out. Listeners, keep your eyes open. And I fangirl about Be There in Five, Kate's podcast on my Instagram all the time. I really can't say enough good things about it. Um, I think that Kate and I share a lot of like similar sensibilities and appreciations for things. And 
Kate also has the same obsession with things like religious groups and MLMs (laughs) that I do. And so somehow like every subject that you cover is something that I too am obsessed with. So um, listeners, if you share our weird obsessions and you want to hear more about why they matter, nobody does a deep dive like Kate Kennedy. So go check out Be There in Five. Oh, thank you. You're the best. I so appreciate it. Thank you for having me on again. This was so much fun. And thanks for doing a book that was a little younger than you're used to. I, I, this was like a reflex for me how fast I thought of it. So it was a joy to do again. No, thank you for coming up with the idea. And it's good for all of us to get out of our comfort zone sometimes. So thank you. Absolutely. Bye, Kate. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.